Welcome to the Period Recovery Podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Donovan, registered dietitian and period recovery expert who has been where you currently are. This is the podcast to listen to if you want your period back month after month or if you want to restore your fertility and feel more relaxed around food and exercise. Consider this your safe space that will take the guests and the stress out of period recovery and bring you the information, the inspiration, tools, stories, and empowerment that are key in getting your period back month after month. Get ready to be inspired, get ready to get your period back, and get ready to get your life back. Come on, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. My special announcement is that the Eat to Regain Your Period group coaching program is back and now accepting clients for 2024. So picture this, more support, more personalized updates based on the latest client's research and even more time with myself. Yes, you heard it right. I am ready to guide you on your journey to getting your period back and restoring your fertility. So that's not all. For a limited time, of December 2023 in January 2024, I am offering a special discount of $150 off the program. Can you believe it? And it's my way of saying like, let's make 2024 the year that you finally get your period back and restore your fertility. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Period Recovery Podcast. And today on the podcast, I have my colleague, Emily Everton, and Emily is a doctor of physical therapy and the founder of Embodied Physical Therapy and Wellness in Massachusetts. And Emily specializes in orthopedic and pelvic floor therapy, and she is extremely passionate about all things HA. And that is because Emily actually had HA herself at one point. So she brings us through a little bit about her journey on how she lost her period, how she regained it, and then also how pelvic floor function and other things things in our bodies are directly, so directly correlated to HA. And she even shares some tips and tricks for us to add some tools on to the already foundation that we need to be doing, which is eating more and resting more, but some mindset and some other exercises that you can help do to regulate your nervous system and in hopes to really promote an overall holistic healing for HA. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. So let's dive in and chat with Emily. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the Period Recovery Podcast. Hi, Cynthia. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited you're finally here too because we've been trying to schedule this for a really long time now. And then the summer hits and then I was trying to schedule some things out in September. Then I was on vacation. So I'm so excited that we are here now recording this and going to chat all things pelvic floor dysfunction and all things nervous system in relation to HA. But before we get into all of the science and stuff, I want to talk to Emily a little bit about her history with HA and kind of how she got into her profession and specializing in what she does. So Emily, tell me more about when did you lose your period? How did you lose your period? And we'll go from there. Yeah. Okay. Anytime I talk about this, I'm like, let's try to make this as concise as possible. But I think a little a little bit more information comes out each time. So I was a competitive dancer and cheerleader growing up. So I was pretty active from such a young age. And I was also 
a small, young adolescent girl. So from a very young age, I was having to go to my pediatrician like every six months instead of every year just to make sure I was, you know, gaining appropriate weight and whatnot. So from the time I can remember, there was always this extra focus brought to my body weight shape size. And primarily because I was in a smaller body that I had to have like additional medical professionals kind of checking in and whatnot. So my first period, which was not even like really a full bleed, but came, I think around age 15. So pretty late for me in general, but it didn't come back after that, which we know, you know, the first six months periods can be a little bit irregular, but at the time, you know, not having the knowledge I have now, my mom and I went to my pediatrician and I was immediately put on birth control. So I really only had one seemingly somewhat of a period before I was put on birth control. So I think, you know, some low energy availability reds was going on from like the conception, you know, from the beginning, but the the birth control was masking it because I was getting a period on, well, a withdrawal bleed on birth control. And so flash forward, I kind of would get on and off birth control because I just didn't feel great on it. Anytime I would get off of it, I would never get my period. I think the longest stint I would go would be like six months, no period. And every time I went back to my doctor and, you know, inquired about it, they just put me back on birth control. I was on and off birth control for a really long time, all through undergrad for me. I cheerleaded competitively in college. I started to get some overuse injuries, just was really struggling with body image, controlling my body, restricting food. And I would say in college is when it became really disordered and disruptive. I was, you know, macro tracking. At the time, I think I, 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 FYM, like if it fits your macros was pretty hot and heavy. So I would do that. And my body composition drastically changed as I went into college. I lost a lot of weight. I became extremely lean. And I, again, I would get off birth control. My period wouldn't come. So I ended up developing a bone stress injury at the time that got me, that sent me into the um, athletic training with, with the athletic trainers. And the doctor had asked me about my menstrual cycle. And I shared with him, you know, I've always been on birth control, but anytime I get off birth control, I don't get my period. And I really got to give him props because they did see concern with this, especially with the concern that I had a stress fracture or some type of bone stress injury. So they set me up with a nutritionist that was paired with that athletic trainer. And unfortunately, it was just, it was a poor experience for me. I should say registered dietitian because I was weighed every time I would went in and it was just asked to track my calories to make sure I was hitting certain caloric. And at that time, actually increasing my calories kind of set me into this like hyper metabolic state. So I actually lost weight as I started to increase calories. And that's probably because I was under fueled for so long, but I was so active that my metabolism just really sped up as I started to feed myself more food. So um, needless to say, I broke up with that dietitian. And I'm just going to kind of like flash forward because I don't want to take up too much time here. But I eventually graduated from undergrad and started grad school to become a doctor of physical therapy. And my first year, I was definitely still very disordered. I couldn't let go of that control piece, super perfectionism, type A, needed to get the 4.0, needed to do all the things. And something just dawned on me. I was like, you know, this is not right. I'm not getting a period. At one point, I actually started to gain some weight because, you know, you can only stay in a restricted state for so long before the pendulum swings and you start to see like that that shift in the metabolism. And Mm -hmm. I was just feeling super burnt out from 
the behaviors I was doing. So I set off on a journey. Once I graduated grad school, I got off birth control for good and I started learning more. And I set off on a journey to find a provider that I felt could really help me. So I went through three different OBGYNs because each one was just telling me to go back on birth control and that they couldn't you know, explore my fertility until my husband and I, or boyfriend at the time, were um, trying to get pregnant. And so I just wasn't getting answers until finally I had an appointment where she was like, you know what, this is, no, this is concerning. You haven't had a cycle. And at the time, I think it was two and a half, three years. So she did the whole gamut. We did a DEXA scan. We did the brain MRI. We did the whole blood panel and everything kind of pointed to hypothalamic amenorrhea, which to me at that point, I was really just looking for looking for the diagnosis that I knew I had. So they did find a small Rathke cleft cyst on my brain MRI, which did want to kind of hang on to and thought that was the reason for my missing period. I don't know if your your clients have ever had, you know, a small pituitary like cyst or anything, but I went to the reproductive endocrinologist and he was like, nope, this is just congenital. It's so tiny. All of the signs point to HA and kind of set me on that way. So it was almost like I needed that permission. Here's your diagnosis. Here's what you have to do. Like, let's do it. And that's really where my HA journey to healing my body took like full steam ahead. And so it took me actually a long time to get my period back. I dealt with a lot of resistance. I did work with some registered dietitians, wonderful dietitians, wonderful healthcare providers, but I just wasn't ready to change. So my journey was pretty, pretty long and drawn out. It took me 18 months to get my period back. And yeah, so that's that's kind of my story in a nutshell. And I can blend that into kind of the work I do now and how that impacted me in my career as a physical therapist. And I want to thank you, Emily, for sharing all of that with me and our audience. And yes, I want to know how it, it's come together. First, I have some questions and like just things I want to point out because just like you, just like me and so many other women were slapped this band-aid of birth control. And gosh, how many providers did you go through until they were like, okay, let's like explore this like a ton. And it's just one person. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing. But, you know, one of the ways that we could tell, and I'm not going to go into all the ways, but because you shared you had a stress injury. And so that is one telltale sign if you are on birth control and you're getting the seemingly period, which is FYI, a fake period, that that's one way of saying like, hmm, let's explore this a little bit more deeply. And so another thing I wanted to um, touch on too is this hypermetabolic state because this can be a thing for people. And so many women out there are extremely fearful of their bodies changing, gaining weight, because we always think the more food we eat, the more weight we gain, which it doesn't always work that way. Your metabolism is just ever so changing. There are so many things that could impact it. And especially if you've been in this place of restriction, eating disorder, anything like that. So I just I just wanted to highlight that a little bit. And then also, most importantly, the two other things I wanted to chat about quickly is so you had a little pituitary tumor. And so I heard you say, well, I was trying to hold on to that right? We try to hold on to every little itty bitty thing because at the end of the day, we really, we don't want to change. 
for so many reasons. And not because we just want to stay unhealthy forever, but there's so many of these behaviors are linked to so many things that have happened over the course of many years that have brought us to in this disordered, unhealthy place. So if this is you out there holding on to these little tiny things, and especially too, I heard you say, Emily, about your just needed permission with a diagnosis, and we'll talk about that in a second. But holding on to these things, we're just delaying the process of getting healthy, delaying the process of truly living our lives as well, which a period is awesome and amazing and so important for our health, but also really what's important for your health is living your life and not being just chained by these, you know, body image thoughts and so forth and when you're going to exercise, how you're going to do it and what foods you can or can't have and all that. So absolutely. I mean, I always say this, but I just want to put a disclaimer out. It does not need to take you 18 months to get your period back. Like it really does not. I shouldn't say that I, if I could do it differently, I wouldn't have to get my period back sooner now knowing what I, if I knew then what I know now, but honestly, my journey, I truly don't think I would have changed anything because it allowed me so much time to heal my relationship with my body, with food, with exercise. And I am truly like such a different person that I don't think this growth would have been possible for me on my own if I got my period back in say four weeks. And that's not to discount anyone who gets their period back fast. That's amazing. That's always a goal. I want that for women, but the journey doesn't stop there. And if it does, you're probably going to find yourself in HA again down the line because you didn't address those mindset root causes, as I like to call them. Absolutely. And I love that you shared that, Emily, because I think a lot of us, my clients included, they're like, oh my gosh, it's taking longer than X amount of months or X amount of weeks, and which could be scary. And I don't know if it's the scary part of you know the unknown, right? Because as perfectionists, do not, not like to know when things are going to happen, right? So you know, knowing that if it takes a little bit longer than quote unquote the average, that's okay. There's so much more time to work on other things throughout your journey. And I always like to tell my clients, the period is the icing on the cake. All the other things you're doing to get to your period, healing relationship with food, body, and so forth, that is what's going to keep your period coming back month after month after month. So one other thing, Emily, I want to touch on, the permission of the diagnosis, right? Because you know, maybe a lot of women out there don't have the time, the resources, what, what have you, to seek out a professional that is going to be like, no, this is what you have. This is what you have. And so a lot of us feel like we need that validation. And it's not to say that you shouldn't go to the doctor. I'm not saying that because HA is a diagnosis of exclusion. But if you fit the bill of all the check boxes of HA, which I'm not going to go into right now, trust your gut. Trust your gut and, and ask yourself like, okay, why do I need this external validation? of the doctor diagnosing me. And yeah, it's great to rule out other things like a pituitary tumor because if it is large enough, it can impact things as far as HA recovery goes. But, you know, asking yourself, is this fear keeping me here? Absolutely. I love how you just mentioned that too because I think for the majority of women with HA, they have this deeper intuition and deeper knowing, you know, depending on how how deep into it you are, but like in today's society, we're so taken out of our own intuition. You know, there's so many things that take us out of just our bodies in general that like really just sit with it. And if you are like resonating with the stuff that you put out, Cynthia, or so many wonderful HA providers put out, and you know, deep down that this resonates with you, like trust in that. And I think that that's permission enough and you don't ever need permission, but that's, you know, that's enough to know that you 
practices are better because even if it's not HA and you're resonating with this over-exercise and controlling your body and eating, that's not a way to live regardless if it's HA or not. So you never have to give your permission to decide that that's not how you want to live your life. And I think that's so important. Yeah, that's nicely put. Nicely put. And unfortunately, most majority of doctors, at least in my expertise of the years I've been practicing with women just having HA, I would say, gosh, I can't put a percentage to it, but majority, we'll just say, of doctors do not know anything about HA. And so you're searching for this validation that you may never get. And at that time, like HA is not just fertility, it's bone health, it's heart health. There's so many other things. And so leading into that, Emily, we're going to talk about some pelvic floor dysfunction and kind of how you got to where you were. But I know you said it took you 18 months to get your period back. You know, are there were there any things other than the, you know, the recipe of eating more, resting more that you did to get your period back? And then let's, I guess, dive into the relation of what you do now. Yeah. So, you know, I think that was multifactorial. I do think in the beginning I was like willing to really modify my exercise and eat more. I think I was coming from a place that was super restrictive. And at the time, I didn't even realize like how kind of deep into that I was and how much I wasn't, you know, fueling my body appropriately. So I was making really like large jumps in retrospect from what I was doing, but it just wasn't enough. And I wasn't willing to push the envelope any further for a bit of time. So, you know, something as silly at, well, it's really not silly, but eating three eggs and meat and a full bagel at breakfast instead of doing like one piece of toast and two eggs. You know, I had to level up with the food to really see the change there. And then I did get married within the time span of my recovery. And I honestly don't think it set me back in any way. I'm really proud of myself for the way that I forged on. I had decided, you know, I've come too far to go back to my old habits. So I actually got a new wedding dress and had to kind of go through that kind of emotional journey. But honestly, one of the things that really made the biggest difference was just surrendering to the process. And I stopped fighting my body and I really worked on the mindset around everything. I finally surrendered to my body will fall where she feels safe and needs to fall. And I just need to completely surrender and trust in this. And I need to do the deeper work. And once my mindset got around to no longer caring about what my body looked like and, you know, eating based off of what society was telling me is healthy, that's when I saw the, the most drastic change. When I made some adjustments at work too, work was a big stressor for me that I didn't even realize. So when I worked on managing stress, that was huge for me. Yeah, those are some great tips too. Just, you know, the the whole surrendering, stop fighting, right? Because we have two choices. We can go with it or we can go against it. Both are hard for sure, but one is going to lead you to the outcome. I just had talked about this on my Instagram. Like, There's a lot of fear of the unknown throughout the HA recovery journey. And fear is like this primal emotion that we feel as human beings. But fear also stimulates our nervous system response to be more in this like sympathetic state where we're on like fight, flight, or freeze. And I'm a big believer in the health of your nervous system impacting your ability for your body to feel safe and nourished. And we know that safety is a big thing when it comes to reproduction and getting a menstrual cycle and ovulating. So I think, you know, the mindset has to be addressed. You know, everyone's sensitivity is going to be different. Maybe they can just up their calories by X amount and cut out exercise and it comes back. But for other women, you know, 
I think my message would just be if it's taking you a longer time, like, and just in general, like, look at those other things, look at the things outside of food and exercise too, because it really all does matter. And stress plays a really big role. Yeah, it plays a huge role. And all those stress hormones that are kind of firing off when we are in this fight or flight do not promote our sex hormones (laughs) to turn on. And all because our body is just trying to protect us. It's not because our body is trying to be like a jerk to us. It's just all protection, all survival. And so that's one of the million reasons why our bodies are so amazing. And I did want to say, Emily, I don't want to go too far off in it, but I know there's a lot of women out there listening that are potentially getting married soon, want to be engaged soon, get married. And like, how can I do this while I'm getting married? And easier said than done, right? Emily bought a new wedding dress. And you might say, well, that's so hard. I spent X amount of money on it and so forth. And I just want to point out there, can I tell you guys, and I may have talked about this somewhere down the line, but I look back at my wedding and I see a woman who missed out on the majority of her wedding because she was so concerned about what she was going to look like and how toned and what the pictures were going to look like from years to come. And I just missed out on so much. And even on my honeymoon, I wouldn't even take my bathing suit cover up off to take a picture. And so, you know, think about how you want to feel on your wedding day and look back at those photos. And I'm sure Emily can look back on her photos and say, you know what? I did the best thing for my body. And and not to throw a guilt trip on myself, but you know, I only knew what I knew when I knew it, but you knew different at that particular time. And if you are getting married soon, you know now different. And if you're feeling like you can't do HA and your wedding at the same time, recovery, then get the support that you need to get through that. Yeah, absolutely. Such an important note, Cynthia. And I'm sorry that was your experience. And again, there's no shame or guilt like I always share with clients. I look back and I'm just so, so happy that I did that. And, you know, I will say like having a support system is really important. I had parents who were super supportive. My bridesmaids were super supportive. My mom was like the biggest cheerleader in getting another dress. And well, I should say my husband, like such, such a great support network. And so, I really tried to flip the internal dialogue. Will I say that that was the easiest thing ever for me? Absolutely not. In retrospect, you know, I actually went with a dress that was still fitted, which I wasn't sure if I was going to do. And I flaunted my new curves. Like I, you know, I tried to flip the script of like, I can't wait to walk down the aisle and my husband to just like love the energy that I'm radiating and loving this body that is like truly mine. Because when you're controlling your body and keeping it in a body that doesn't serve you, it's not, you know, that's not truly where she wants to be. I remember the, again, I don't want to go too far off topic, but my first dress fitting, like my first time I was going to pick out the dress when I was really, you know, significantly in HJ. I remember having dinner with my husband the night before when I was going with my mom the, the next day. And I just said to him, like, this sucks. Pre-wedding planning sucks. I feel like I can't have this glass of wine with you. I feel like I can't have the carbs because I'm going to try on dresses tomorrow. And I will never forget that conversation because it was just like a such a pivotal moment for me. And the second time I went, I was like, this is freedom. Like I get to be on my wedding day and like lick my plate clean and maybe eat some of my husband's if he didn't eat all of it. So yeah, I really encourage it's so much easier said than done. But when you can get to this place of freedom, it's just so beautiful and really worth it. 
I like to say it's the gift that keeps on giving, truly. I mean, it's been many years since I've been recovered and I still get excited that I have this freedom. Probably because I'm constantly reminded of how much freedom so many others don't have that are around me because it's just so normalized to be and act this way around food and our bodies and so forth. So, all right. So let's get a little bit sciency now, Emily, and I appreciate you sharing your story because I know so many women will be able to resonate with it. Let's talk pelvic floor. Maybe start from the like very basics of what the heck is a pelvic floor or why is it important? Absolutely. I love this topic. Love to talk pelvic floor and especially in the context of HA disorder eating. So your pelvic floor is made up of skeletal muscles and other connective tissues, vascular structures. But oftentimes when women hear pelvic floor, they're thinking of the muscles of the pelvic floor. So the pelvic floor muscles act as a hammock and they connect from front, so your pubic bone, back to your tailbone, and then side to side from sits bone to sits bone. And so there are three different layers. There's a superficial, intermediate, and a deeper layer, and they all serve different functions. But most of us kind of know the functions of, say, sexual function, urine removal, lymph control, posture, breathing, support, stability. Um, the main ones is they do support our pelvic organs. And so they play like a really large role in a lot of things. And I don't think we can talk about the pelvic floor muscles without talking about the wider system that they operate within. So I like to talk to my clients about this core canister. And what I mean by that is that our pelvic floor is the bottom of what we consider the core. So we think of our core as like our abdominal muscles, but our abdominal muscles and specifically a deep muscle called our, called our transverse abdominus is the front of that canister. So our back muscles, there's a deep muscle called our multifidus. That's the back. The bottom is the pelvic floor. And then the top is the diaphragm, which sits right under your rib cage. And all of these muscles work together to manage pressure, which is something we talk a lot about in pelvic floor PT worlds. And yeah, so they really just all operate together. And I just think that it's so fascinating that our pelvic floor just doesn't operate in isolation. There's connections from the pelvic floor and the jaw down to the foot. Yeah, that's really cool. And I love how you describe it like this little canister. So, and I wish, I know some things about pelvic floor because I work with a colleague of mine on it, like for personal stuff, postpartum stuff, which I'm like five, six years out postpartum. So it's very interesting to me and learning more about it. So I know you said, you know, the diaphragm, back muscles, I can't remember what that back muscle was, pelvic floor and so forth, they all they all work together. And so how is HA impacting these or how are they impacting HA or however you want to kind of stem it to make this connection with HA and feel free to go off any avenue that is most appropriate. There's so many avenues we could go off of. I'm super, super passionate about this and how all of this is connected. So, you know, I think we could start off with just like this direct connection to the pelvic floor and pelvic floor symptoms themselves. So a typical hormonal profile for a woman with HA, and I never want to make blanket statements because you can have HA without seeing these hormonal changes on lab work. But a common thing we see is decreased estrogen or estradiol. And estrogen plays a really important role in our bodies, widespread. It's really important for bone health. It's really important for brain health, for heart health, for our blood vessels, for our muscles. And so as estrogen pertains to muscle health, muscle and bone health, it really helps to strengthen these tissues. It also promotes tissue laxity as well. And for ligaments and tendons, it also plays a role there too. So when we see low estrogen, we can see 
changes in these tissues, we can see atrophy, so like thinning of the muscular tissues. We can see decreased strength, increased fatigability. And these types of things can lead to increased urinary urgency, incontinence, frequency, low libido, painful sex, UTIs, and infections. Our bladder actually has a muscular layer. So when we see low estrogen, that impacts the bladder, and that could also impact the pH of the vaginal microbiome, and that can impact our ability to contract infections. So estrogen in and of itself and low estrogen levels, particularly like chronically low estrogen levels are going to impact the pelvic floor. We see this a lot in peri and postmenopausal women. And sometimes these, this hormonal profile almost mirrors that of a woman who has HA and specifically like the longer time that they have HA. So that's, you know, one thing connecting that estrogen. And of course, we know that estrogen really contributes to cervical mucus production. And so when we're not getting that good cervical mucus production, we're also often going to see vaginal and vulvar dryness. It's due to dyspareunia, which is pain with sex and other conditions as well. And we see thinning of that endometrial lining, which is that uterine lining, which further can increase the occurrence of infection too. So I know I kind of just talked a lot about the estrogen it's really fascinating. I feel like I could talk about this for days. So fascinating. I mean, to kind of even touch or add upon that, like we're talking pelvic floor for the most part here, but I mean, estrogen is affecting all of our muscles. And I know weightlifting or I guess weight bearing activities are very front and center in our society for so many different reasons. One particular bone health. But here's the thing, you guys, if you don't have any estrogen, or very little, like you're just, gosh, what's a what's a good analogy? Like, I don't know, spinning your wheels, running and getting nowhere? I think those are great analogies, you know, and it's something that I talk about a lot because we see like women who have these diagnoses of osteoporosis or osteopenia at a young age, and they want to hold on to this bone building exercise. But we know the research supports that if an athlete or any active woman is working out in a state of low energy availability and specifically with amenorrhea, they're not getting the bone benefits, the anabolic effect on the bones. The number one thing you can do for your bone health is to get your period back. 100% agree. And just a side note, many doctors out there may still say, oh, you know, you're, you know, maybe they do a DEXA scan and, you know, they don't know that you have HA even though you have no period. They may tell you like, weight bearing, you know, do weight bearing activities. And that, I mean, I cannot diagnose or anything, but just like Emily said, the best thing you can do is get your period back because that is going to increase your estrogen levels, the natural hormone in your body that is going to improve your bone health or stop it from further declining. I just want to put a note on the DEXA scans too, because I think it is important. You know, some women can get a DEXA scan and it can show up quote unquote normal. But we know, especially for athletes, for athletic populations, and I'm speaking primarily to like younger athletes because we kind of think of that. But, you know, at any age, if you are athletic, and especially if you are an athlete exercising, you know, multiple days a week for long hours, your bone health should actually be that above of the norm. So if it is within the norm, that might be a sign in and of itself that your bone health is struggling because it should be above the norms if you're doing a lot of load-bearing activities and sporting activities. 
Yeah, that's a really great point and something that can stick out. And another thing, just because your hormone labs, you know, your estrogen or whatever, like typically your estrogen isn't going to be normal limits, but other labs that are like, quote unquote, normal, DEXA scan, quote unquote, normal, like at the end of the day, a missing period is not normal. Bottom line. Not normal. It's never normal. You know, I think there's two, like we know the recommendations for like transdermal estrogen. If you don't get your period back within like six to 12 months of making the necessary lifestyle changes, but that's a whole nother like can of worms that we, it's not the topic of our conversation right now, but. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can do another recording on that because that's a whole, like you said, another can of worms. Okay, so we're talking a little bit of low estrogen or non-existent estrogen and how it's impacting. And, you know, that I can't remember, Emily, off the top of my head when I had HA, but I had to. Yeah, yeah, I definitely because I just remember like, oh, I drink so much water. I'm just peeing all the time, right? Because I'm drinking so much water because I am, you know, trying to avoid eating and I'm drinking water instead. But could I have been peeing a lot from the water? Absolutely. But chances are it was because of my lack of estrogen. For sure. I would say lack of estrogen. Another thing too is that a lot of women with HA might be reaching for like carbonated beverages and ways to kind of soothe like a craving that they have, but with minimal calories. And these things can be bladder irritants. So they can irritate your bladder and make you have to urinate more frequently. And then the other thing I would say is just a lot of us don't know what normal voiding patterns are. So you should really be peeing five to eight voids per day. And really, if you're under the age of like 60, you shouldn't really be waking up in the middle of the night to urinate one time at most. But if you're waking up like two, three, four times in the middle of the night to urinate and use the bathroom, then that's definitely a sign of that low estrogen and something else is under the hood. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that too, because that could be another sign. And so, okay. So we have low estrogen um, in relation to, you know, muscles, pelvic floor. So what else do you have for us, Emily, and how HA and kind of pelvic floor dysfunction resonate? I think a lot of times when we also think of pelvic floor PT or pelvic floor treatment, we're thinking, again, just isolated to the pelvic floor, but the abdominal wall is really part of that and um, the digestive system too and the whole nervous system. So many women with HA will mention that symptoms of bloating or they get full really quickly after they start eating or they're dealing with constipation. All of these symptoms can be addressed with pelvic floor PT, but also that root cause needs to be addressed. So I'll give a couple of examples here. First of all, if we are constipated, that in and of itself can put more pressure down into the pelvic floor. So that's going to increase pressure downwards. For women, So I always like to make the distinction, eating disorders and HA are not one and the same, but for women who may be dealing with an eating disorder and are purging, that is going to put a lot of pressure down into the pelvic floor and can cause a lot of pelvic floor dysfunction. That also puts a lot of cinching and pressure into the abdomen and overusing those abdominal muscles, which also put pressure down into the pelvic floor, trying to be our smallest self and corsetting at our waist and sucking in. That creates a lot of tightness in our abdominal muscles. That is going to, can impact digestion, can impact our ability to get nice, big 360 degree breaths, which is something I talk about frequently and put pressure down into the pelvic floor. 
So all of these things contribute. And then with, you know, gastroparesis or slow digestive function, there are ways that we as, you know, doing body work and doing some visceral mobilizations and abdominal mobilizations can help with that too. There's lymphatic work we can do to try to help with some of the bloating as well. But those are some other ways that the abdominal wall and the pelvic floor are connected and what I see show up for women with AHA. Yeah, that's really interesting too, because yeah, majority of women do experience digestive issues at some point in time. And, you know, those methods like the visceral therapy that you're talking about, those are all amazing things. And maybe we can dive a little bit more deeper into them. But I just want to say all these types of therapies or movements or whatever it may be Emily's talking about, and I know Emily will agree with me here, is that we need to simultaneously work on eating enough too. Because none of that's going to work if we don't repair, not only give us enough food to get a period back, but there's so many things on a cellular level that need repairing with enough food. You don't have a period, you're in an energy deficit. So that's important along the line. But it's nice to know that other therapies and things can be used in conjunction with eating enough and resting enough. But there's no getting away from that, ladies. There is no getting away from that. And I will say in my training, we learn a lot about constipation and healthy bowel movements and how to help healthy bowel movements. And, you know, we learn a bit about like nutrition and I see a lot of unintentional harm being done in this space because we are giving, and I'm not just talking about the PT profession, you know, just medical professionals in general, we slap very generic recommendations on women without knowing how that is going to impact someone and how you are harming someone. So by removing dairy, gluten, seed oils, all of the things and telling someone to remove all of these, you know, inflammatory foods, or did you ask them, are you eating enough. But you know, what are you even eating to begin with? Because you might just be pulling away more foods and driving them further into an energy deficit, revving up their stress hormones because they're so stressed about everything. And you are just further worsening their constipation and really setting them up for perhaps disordered eating or or an eating disorder. So I think we really have to be intentional. And I don't think it's every provider's place to be eating disorder informed. That would be wonderful. I think we need to learn more about it in our schooling. More so, I want this message to kind of get out to your audience and women that if you've been told this by a doctor, know that, you know, not all doctors kind of have this experience and this knowledge base. And although their recommendations are probably well-intentioned, sometimes it can be doing a lot more harm than good. I 100% agree with that. And it stinks because then I would say a lot of my clients before they get to me, they're like, I went to this doctor and that naturopath and that this and that like, and then they're frustrated, like, well, is this even going to work? And so yeah, you just got to take a look at the bigger picture of things and just continue to gather the information that you need and trust your intuition on what needs to happen next. But it is, yeah, a lot of recommendations. And even though they do mean well, hopefully they all do mean well, that it could drive you deeper into the constipation and then also deeper into the HA, right? So, and to think about these inflammatory things, and I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole, but like if your period is missing, your body is like already inflamed and that's because of the lack of food. And so food is your fuel and all these digestive issues that you probably have is related to your energy deficit that you're in. 
1000% and you're not producing progesterone, that nice anti-inflammatory hormone, you know, you're lacking those hormones that really help you feel a bit better too. So that's so important. And I don't know if you had any other questions based off of what I just shared, but I think, you know, this really blends well into the whole like stress response in our nervous system. And what I see a lot is that there's so much stress on what can I eat that's not going to hurt my digestion and make me bloat and make me feel like crap. And also this need to control your body because society we live in and these things just further drive the sympathetic response or what we call our fight or flight response. And I don't know, Cynthia, if you're into like the polyvagal theory, but it's a little bit more expanded. You can also have this like freeze or fawn or immobile type response, but this really is going to impact all systems as well. So some stress response might look like for some, you're clenching your jaw, your shoulders are coming up to your ears, you're holding a lot of tension. And we have a fascial connection all the way from our jaw down to our pelvic floor. And oftentimes what I see, I would say nine times out of 10, if I'm working with a woman on pelvic floor tension, hypertonicity, increased tone of those muscles, they also report some type of temperament, TMJ like condition or just jaw tightness. So there's like a huge connection there. Yeah. And not that I just think of that as you're saying the whole jaw connection thing. That's one thing I just want to say to look out for, for sure. And it's one thing I, this is not when I was going through HA or actually, I don't know. I'm trying to think, Emily, because I had quote unquote been diagnosed with TMJ like many, 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 many years ago. So it could have potentially been when I was in HA, but I think of it most recently in the past few years, I was under a tremendous amount of personal stress. And I just remember every morning waking up in my jaw just throbbed because I know I was clenching all night long and it was the worst thing ever. And guess what? When the stress went away, it didn't like automatically clear up, but it did over time. So yeah, that's a great, great, great example. And I'm sorry you went through that, but thanks for sharing that. I think that's really important. And, you know, just to your point there, like if we're talking about a true root cause approach, we need to address the root cause. You know, for some, I think it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to like massage my jaw and loosen up these tight muscles. But those muscles got tight for a reason. And what was that reason? And if that's stress, that your stress response is to clench up your jaw, I am not here sitting is going to say that we can just remove all the stress from your life. That's not true. But we need to do the deeper work and we need to find stress management techniques and strategies and really try to, you know, manage as many stressors as we can under eating being a massive one and trying to control our bodies being a massive one. So, I mean, stress drives so much and I just learn that more and more every single day. So many things that are happening in our outside world that we we just cannot control. But like not getting enough food for your body is stressful to your body. Exercising like a madwoman or what you might not perceive as a madwoman, but your body actually perceives you as a madwoman, that is stress to the body. Even though that might be your stress relief, right? Because how many times do you hear, Emily, I know I was one of those women too. Well, I exercise all this. It's my stress relief. It's my outlet. And when it's causing more stress to your body. So I think, I know we can go off on talking more subtopics of, you know, the relation to HA and overall pelvic floor and other muscles and stuff like that. But I want to give the audience maybe some takeaways and maybe some tips and tricks. Aside from, we know like the foundation, the baseline is we need enough food, we need enough rest. That's like 
bottom line and we need to work on mindset. But in relation to Emily, some of the things you've talked about today, like things that on top of the eating enough and the resting enough, what are some, I guess, maybe three to five things that you might be able to share without giving you know, a ton of instruction over podcasts where someone might do something wrong or, you know, something like that. But I think some really low-hanging fruit that I would consider foundations for many of the women that I work with is focusing on some down-regulation techniques. And what I mean by that are techniques that are going to bring us into our parasympathetic or rest and digest state. If we can't get rid of all the stress, which we never can, like how can we create little pockets of calm and peace in our bodies. So one of the ones I give, I'm sure many women have heard about, but just deep breathing. So we hear a lot about diaphragmatic breathing. I like to talk about 360 degree breathing. So we're bringing air, inhaling into our nose and thinking about bringing the air into our rib cage, front sides and back and our bellies kind of evenly. Our pelvic floor should descend as we breathe in and rise as we breathe out. So if we're thinking of an elevator, it comes down as we breathe in, it comes up as we breathe out. And I always cue to breathe out of pursed lips, a nice nice forceful and longer exhale than the inhale. Even just like two to five nice, deep 360 degree breaths can be enough to really help women just calm down, release tension in their bodies. Other things that you can do are, there are like pressure points on the body that you can just apply some pressure to that allow the system to come. So like this point kind of in between thumb and first finger, sometimes I'll just put some pressure there and it, you know, provides some ease, but also tapping. So tapping various areas on your body. For me, I tend to carry a lot of like stress in my chest or my belly. I'm a chronic like belly cincher or like from years of programming, be your smallest self and suck in. I will just gently tap these areas just to try to give myself a little bit of that release too. So that's another great one, humming. So just humming and that vibration or singing is going to stimulate our vagus nerve, which we didn't get too much into, but that kind of drives this parasympathetic or rest and digest system. So humming and things that are going to, and the breathing and the breath work are really helpful to tap into that vagus nerve kind of down regulation and, or we want to stimulate the vagus nerve, but down regulate the system. Think just like really calming movements. So like some cat cows are just going through some nice, like gentle flows. And, you know, in HA, we think we need to cut out all movement, all exercise, but I really do think there's an opportunity to bring in some embodiment through movement. So things like you know, gentle flowing movements, connecting into the core, connecting into the pelvic floor and doing some movements that are going to like empower us and embody us and bring us back home to our body rather than blast the music and do some hit and sprints on the treadmill. It's it's a very different intention behind those movements. Yeah. And I can speak directly to that, Emily, because I've been doing movements like that for the past couple of years and not really for any reason, but I just fell into it because of postpartum and how I knew my pelvic floor was probably a rock after kids and my abdominal area. So I just wanted to feel better in my body, not better aesthetically. I just want to put that out there, but just like me being able to sit at this desk today with, you know, not hunching my back over and just, you know, naturally being able to sit up straight, things like that. Your activities of daily living versus like trying to fit into a certain size jean or a bikini or something like that. So that's important to know. But I honestly never knew how much stronger I could 
feel doing such low impact, deep connective stuff to my body. It's truly, it's truly amazing because it's made me unlearn everything I did learn about exercise over the years of like how we got to get our heart rate up and how we got to, you know, make sure we're doing, you know, three days of weightlift, you know, just, just societal's ideal of what movement um, should look like. I love that you're doing that. I'm sure you're doing some good thoracic mobility stuff too. The last one I would say too, I just want to make sure I mention this because I really love this. It worked really well for myself through my recovery journey. And that is a bit of exposure therapy. So taking your hands and putting them on your belly or whatever you know area is perhaps triggering is a strong word to use here, but whatever area you're having a really hard time kind of accepting through some body changes for a lot of women, it is their stomach. So lying on your back, or you can be sitting up, but I find lying on your back is a little bit better here. Take your hands over your abdomen. You can put some lotion on or some like oil or whatnot. And you're just kind of like rubbing your belly with just about enough pressure that you would like put in to rub on sunscreen. So oftentimes we hold a lot of tension here. So it's twofold. We're stimulating some blood flow to the area. We're getting those tissues to calm down. And we're also exposing ourselves and feeling an area of our body that we tend to want to neglect. The more we can kind of expose ourselves, it's almost like a brain exercise. The more exposure, the less triggering it is for you. So I love that one. Love it for my postpartum mamas too. It's just really, it's really helpful. It was very helpful for me in my own recovery too. Yeah, I love that tip, Emily. And you've shared some amazing tips and amazing information with us today. And then also appreciate you sharing your story and how this is all connected for you. You could tell you're extremely passionate about, you know, your your career and how it actually relates to HA, which it is. It's just so fascinating how much, you know, your hormones play a part in every single little thing in your body. So Yeah, very cool. So if people out there want to find you, Emily, where is the best place to find you? So I'm most active on Instagram right now. So emilyeverton.dpt. However, people can find me through my website and contact me there. It's www.embodyptwell.com. It is in serious need for an update. I feel like I've been saying that for a while, but in the new year, one will come, but you can definitely contact me there. And then, yeah, I think I'll provide in your show notes, just my, the number you can reach me out and email as well, but definitely Instagram is where I'm most active. Awesome, Emily. Well, thank you so much today for taking the time out to chat with me, share a wealth of information with the audience, and I will see you soon. Thank you for having me, Cynthia. This was really fun. Thank you. Hi, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please take a moment to think and reflect on how this could be helpful in your period recovery journey. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Period Recovery Podcast. We know there are a lot of pods out there, and I'm so excited and grateful you are here listening with me. If you need more support on your period recovery journey, schedule a time to chat with me on my website, periodnutritionist.com. If you found this podcast helpful, please help me spread awareness on missing periods by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing this podcast with others. Are you ready to get your period back and your life back? I'll see you in two weeks.